when two people were performing, we would all be watching and listening at the same time and taking in what they were saying at the same time. And that just made me realize that if you can start there, if you can start at listening and listening not to respond, but listening to truly understand, it is, you know, game changing. You may not change somebody's mind, but for me personally, it activated a lot of things that helped me be open to other perspectives because you're seeing everybody's humanity. Hello and welcome to How to Have a Conversation, a podcast about how the arts and humanities engages in conversation. I am your host, Maria Jose Pareja Rosso. In this episode, we will learn how the In Your Shoes project uses theatrical tools to create deep, challenging, and mutually respectful dialogue between people from different backgrounds. Ijeo Manjaka will share her insights as inclusive pedagogy specialist and facilitator of In Your Shoes. Anashani Kotege will share her experiences as a participant. Let's listen to them. Hello, Ijeoma. Welcome to How to Have a Conversation. It is so nice to have you today with me. Thank you for the invite. I'm really excited to chat with you. You are one of the leaders of the In Your Shoes project. So first of all, I would like to learn a little bit about you and the project. I'm Ijeoma Njaka. Pronouns are she, her, hers. I've been at Georgetown for five years. Right now, I'm in a split position at Georgetown. Um, so half of my job is as the senior program associate for equity-centered design at the Red House. Um, the Red House is a unit on Georgetown's campus that focuses on curriculum transformation and uh, making changes to the curriculum to overall make the undergraduate experience more formative and more impactful. And then the other half of my job is as the inclusive pedagogy specialist for the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics. Um, so, you know, one of the missions of the lab is to humanize global politics through performance. And so one unique thing about having sort of these This position that's housed in these two different units is where that intersection work happens. Um, and so one thing that's been really important to me and that I've been focusing on is how the role of the arts is really instrumental to doing transformative work. So if we're interested in having you know, an impact on folks, if we're interested in equipping Georgetown students who go out into the world to work in the government or work across the planet, really, um, and beyond, perhaps, if we're interested in really leaving an impact, um, we actually need to incorporate the arts quite a bit into, into that work. In Your Shoes was kind of the, the brainchild of Derek Goldman, who had been doing this performing one another work where, um, you know, participants have a conversation and then they record it. Um, and the conversation sort of around a, a shared prompt or a kind of open prompt. Um, and then after they record the conversation, each person will sort of separately listen back to that recording. They will excerpt pieces of it verbatim and they'll excerpt pieces um that their partner has said, and then they'll use those words to create a script. Um, and because they take it verbatim, you know, it includes all the pauses or laughs and the likes and the ums. Um, and then when the group gets back together, each person performs as their partner to their partner. And it's really kind of this like deep listening exercise as a way to, um, you know, try to help embody what it is that somebody else has said by, you know, going through the process of saying it yourself as a way to um, better understand where that person's coming from. It's not about persuasion um, or debate, but it's just about how do we deepen this understanding. And so that happens through through that process. So you already told me a bit about the In Your Shoes project. Can you tell me the history of how it began, how it has evolved? When I joined the project, Derek Goldman and Dan Brumberg, who's a government professor, Derek Goldman's in the theater department, they had done In Your Shoes Patrick Henry College, which is a small conservative Christian institution in Purcellville, Virginia. Um, they had done a series of, of In Your Shoes conversations and that type of work for over the course of a year with undergraduates from Georgetown and undergraduates from Patrick Henry College. When I joined the project, we were doing uh, that work again with a second cohort um, of students. Um, and uh, that was sort of how I got introduced to In Your Shoes was working on it there. I think the reason why, you know, Dan Brumberg and Derek Goldman came together um, was because they were really interested in um, addressing political polarization in the U.S. Um, and so there's a lot of rhetoric around, you know, why can't people, you know, from the left and the right talk to each other? And um, how do we get them in a room to converse and to talk about things? Um, and in particular, how do we have those conversations, which, again, are not really about persuasion necessarily, because that's sort of 
that sort of moot and that that in many ways feels um, like it might not be achievable. So, you know, if you remove that as the goal, what would you like to have happen instead? You want people to sort of listen to each other and, and see each other as human beings, really. Um, and so, you know, I think they kind of just like we're looking around to be like, well, what schools, you know, have like kind of conservative student populations or, or mindsets that are, you know, within a reasonable drive from from D.C. Um, and they came across Patrick Henry College and they reached out to Corey Gruel, who's uh, an English professor at Patrick Henry. Um, and he was really interested in the idea and he was really game. And he was able to get um, a group of students together from Patrick Henry to participate with Georgetown students. And so what's been exciting about seeing some of this work for me um, sort of applied in that way is that, you know, a lot of the prompts that we give people to have conversations are not, they're not political. They're they're really open-ended prompts. So, you know, we'll ask them to have a conversation about home. We'll ask them to have a conversation about just something that they love very deeply. They're really open-ended and the students will take the conversation wherever they want. Um, it's in the process of having those conversations, sort of interacting with this person as a human, you know, and students, you know, given their sort of their school community, we'll have a bunch of people who will, you know, when someone from the other school performs them, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. And that person, you know, and they're, they're having like a shared experience before, you know, that they're able to build on that so that when conversations do end up, you know, touching on political topics, um, you know, they care about each other. And so they're interested in trying to listen to each other at that point. The thing that surprises me the most about In Your Shoes is really how you get people to mm -hmm. reach like these very personal conversations and topics. Can you delve a little more deeply into it? I think what's important in part of this process, too, is doing a lot of community building work, like just a lot of, you know, Derek's a theater person. And so, you know, we rely a lot on theater games to sort of get folks warmed up and thinking about embodiment and moving around. Um, and one thing that's interesting about doing theater games with people who may or may not be theater people is that, you know, they're all sort of feeling a little, you know, oftentimes people are feeling a bit reserved, but the act of kind of doing something that maybe feels a little uncommon or even feels a little like absurd, doing that in community with other people, you're, you're suddenly, you're having an experience with them and you're starting to share something. And so a lot of that foundation of building up of shared experiences really matters and shared experiences with like a sense of goodwill. We'll also do community guidelines. And so we'll sort of lay out like, we're all doing something that is really weird and vulnerable and strange and is not a thing that we encounter often in our daily lives. Um, and so like, let's care for each other in that process. Let's care for ourselves. And so we frame a lot of the work around around that sort of that, that shared vulnerability and also that shared like we're building this experience together. Um, and, and that really does sort of generate a lot of good faith and goodwill that we end up sort of seeing in what people are sharing. You know, and I think also we ask folks to be caring in their excerpts. And when they know that somebody else is doing that for them, they want to be equally as caring back to that person because of the, the kind of gift that they're getting of, of really deep listening um, and of being able to, to sort of um, see themselves reflected back in that way. I got chills and I got choked up. I'm not trying to be all rabbinic. It's just how I think. <laughs> And there's this blessing that says, we offer thanks that we were given life, that we were sustained in life, and that we were able to be brought to this moment. And I'm thinking of all the things in my life and with your permission in your life and in our history that brought us to this place. You make me think about And it's also just people say lots of things that don't really get recorded or get remembered in in many ways. And so I think oftentimes folks who are participating are just really like moved that someone listened to something that they said and thought it was so important that they needed to repeat it, transcribe it and perform it. You know, I, I think that ends up, um, un, you know, unearthing a lot for people because there is it just, you know, even if something that they talked about and they kind of forgot about it, but someone, you know, shared it back with them. It, it feels so much more meaningful because of that. Shoes teaches us that to have a real conversation with someone, to talk about topics that are difficult and important to both of us, we need to build a relationship. It's not about discussing abstract topics, 
but rather to talk about why those things are important to us based on our lived experiences. There's something in this process, too, about, like, listening to yourself more deeply. That's part of the exchange. And it's really, it can be a lot from what I've at least perceived from participants, but also for myself when I, you know, did my first in your shoes exercise. It can be sort of intense to sort of understand and comprehend and really be confronted with the evidence of like, you know, just this thing that you said, and you maybe even felt like it was in passing, because most of the things that we say are in passing, and they kind of disappear into the air, and they go away, and they're gone forever. Uh, you know, I, I think just hearing somebody like capture that, and then show that back to you, you are kind of confronted with a, no, this thing that I said mattered, which can be really intense and overwhelming. It could remind us that, yeah, the things that we say can matter and have an impact um, in, in ways uh, that we might not realize. Yeah, and conversation is a skill. So mm -hmm. is listening, right? So it, it's funny because we take it for granted, right? Yeah. Like we do this all of the time, but maybe not deeply enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Oh, yeah, even just sort of hearing you say that now, I'm kind of like, yeah, I guess we give folks instructions on how to listen. Yeah, we're giving them tools to, to do that, but it actually, it does shape how they have the conversation, sort of knowing that they're going to excerpt. But, you know, we try to tell them, like, don't worry about what you're going to record or say, or the fact that you're being recorded. Just try to have a conversation. We'll tell that to the participants. But it's interesting. We'll have, you know, we'll sort of do a little debrief after people perform their partner. And a lot of times people will say, like, yeah, when we had this conversation, like, I knew that that was the thing that I wanted to, to excerpt because, you know, it was really powerful or, you know, it reminded me a lot about this or, you know. And so it's, it's interesting to, yeah, that we, you know, sort of are giving people like a, a listening rubric um, or sort of just steps to follow to, that we're out sort of offering to folks, if you do these things, this person's going to feel listened to. Yeah, walk me through, through those kinds of yeah. tips yeah. that you give them. Well, yeah, what I usually tell folks is it's less so much about the prompt, but just like what stood out to them, what interested them. One of our co-facilitators and colleagues, uh, Rabbi Rachel Gartner, you know, might use the phrase like, what, what are you feeling energy around? You know, and particularly with the sort of longer classes that we've done, both in your shoes. I've led students through really just kind of like noticing exercises, like just, you know, um, there's a, a phrase from an artist, pay attention to what you pay attention to. Like, there are things that catch your eye. Let's just stay with that and just follow them and just keep looking for those things. So yeah, we'll ask folks, you know, again, we'll try to tell them like, have a fun conversation, like try not to worry about being recorded too much. And then yeah, what sort of stands out to you or what do you kind of remember and what feels interesting to you? It is also interesting, you know, we do ask people to do it verbatim. So, you know, a lot of times what happens, you know, sometimes, a lot of times when people are hearing themselves performed, you know, they'll be like, oh, wow, I say like a lot or like, like I curse a lot. You know, like there's a lot, you know, in those types of things, which are, you know, but I think it's, it's interesting if you have a couple of people who have performed the same person who are like, oh, yeah, like the way that this person thinks about things is like really fascinating. And like, I understand that because I like I was listening to their thought process, at, you know, while trying to perform them. Um, so I'll never really know, <laughs> like my only and, and not to say that, like, I'll never really know, but like, I don't know how I will know, like. So it's always very interesting to me, like, because, like, I guess, like, over time, I hope to, like, go back home to Africa and, like, talk to the people in my, like, family towns and stuff. But, like, how much of that, like, would even guide me? Like, they have a partially colonized mindset or, like, they might have broken relationships. So, yeah, I just think about that. And, like, generational stuff. I definitely feel like our generation is just intended to be really different. <laughs> like, it's kind of annoying sometimes. Um, and then, you know, other folks will, will say like, oh, yeah, like, I remember that too when I performed that person. Um, and so that, that I think is really sort of fascinating. And, you know, like, I think, again, being able to sort of do some of this stuff in community sort of helps folks appreciate it in a different way because they are kind of like, and, you know, and sort of taking their own approach to it in, in, in some ways. But, yeah, in terms of what I tell people, Try to have fun, figure out what interests you, and yeah, make sure that you get it like verbatim. And we also ask people to practice it too. So we, you know, when they have their sort of script that they've made out of their partner's words, we don't tell them to share them with their partner because uh, they'll do that when we come back together as a full group. And they'll, when they perform to their partner, that'll be the first time their partner hears it. But we do ask them to practice it a couple of times, not to memorize it. So they do generally read from a script in front of them, and that's fine. We want to make sure that it's as faithful as possible. And we also ask them to 
okay with their partner. If there are things that, you know, their partner shared in that conversation that they don't really want made public, if they, you know, are like, hey, I'm really glad we talked about this, but I don't need everyone else to know about that. You know, making sure that there's an opportunity for them to say that as well. Those are the main things that we mentioned in the process for that. So maybe, uh, can you tell me about the greatest challenge you have faced as, as a facilitator? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, the bit around um, polarization like political divide, you know, I, I think there were sort of some topics that were incredibly personal for folks. Um, and, you know, why wouldn't they be, you know, you know, that were about, you know, their fundamental identities and what those, you know, sort of the belief systems that enable those. Um, and so, you know, having conversations across that, is challenging, but we had had a bunch of shared experiences together, um, particularly with the Patrick Henry cohort that we worked with. That was, again, in the spring semester of 2020. So we had had, like, experiences together, and then the pandemic began. And so we all jumped on remote, virtual, and you know, we we're processing that experience as well, in addition to racial justice issues sort of combined in there. Like, there was a lot, actually, that we were sort of, you know, unpacking and navigating. Um, and so, that you know, it was just, it was it was tough for a lot of reasons. But, you know, ultimately, it was about these sort of, like, fundamental belief systems and trying to think about how are you still, you know, making sure that people are able to say the things that they believe, again, because they're important to them, you know, even if those thoughts and ideas are starting to chafe against, you know, like, other people's, again, fundamental beliefs. So that was, that was challenging. As a facilitator, it, it's the type of thing that, like, you know, I wanted to try to get right. You know, one thing that was particularly interesting about that for me with that cohort is that we had 10 students from Georgetown and eight from Patrick Henry. And so, and we had, you know, like three facilitators from the Georgetown side. Actually, no, we had four. Really, we had five. We had a graduate student, too. So we had all these facilitators from Georgetown. And, you know, this, you know, Corey, our Patrick Henry counterpart, just one there. And so like these numbers felt really skewed. And so, you know, one thing that I, I was very cognizant of as a facilitator is, like, I want to make sure that what we're doing and how we structure this is not really shutting them down or shutting out their voices. This is obviously very important. These are their beliefs. And that, so that, that's really important to prioritize and make space for them. But that was one thing I remember just sort of internally navigating was, like, oh, actually, like, if we think about some of these numbers here, like, I was even worried at times. I was like, well, do people feel like they can't? fully talk about what they believe because of just kind of how the dynamics are set up in this group and and kind of how the numbers are skewed. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because there is always this possibility of people feeling afraid of being Mm -hmm. judged or, or as you said, like it turning into like an us versus them scenario. Yeah, exactly. How do you navigate that? Yeah. It, it, I feel like I'm relying a lot on the phrasing of like, you know, we have a shared experience and so maybe there's some goodwill there. But it, it kind of, you know, it does it does carry a lot. You know, if you have made the choice and have taken these steps to kind of embrace somebody's humanity, you have to do a lot to kind of go back on that. Um, and so I, I think that even, you know, I, I think that even when we would have, you know, conversations, for instance, about privilege with this group, um, they were willing to sit in it and sit in that discomfort because they, they, you know, they ultimately cared about continuing, you know, trying to show other people that they cared about them still. You know, like at the time I may have sort of been wondering, like, you know, do people sort of feel excluded or, or anything or feel like they can't contribute? But, you know, when we, um, so like I mentioned, that was the spring semester of 2020. In January 2021, when the insurrection happened at the, the Capitol, you know, we asked uh, both Patrick Henry Georgetown cohorts who wanted to get back together and have conversations again um, specifically about the insurrection and most of them said yes Um, like the vast majority of them were like yes I'm in this is why I did this project was so that I could like have the opportunity to have these conversations and you know it was incredibly valuable to just be able to to hear that you know it, it was very emblematic of the types of, you know, echo chambers that people are sort of finding themselves in on social media and actually just like people wanting to like just ask questions and to hear about like it just it felt really it actually felt really important that we had done that work. Um, and, and so it, it yeah, like I said, I mean, I think the goodwill actually goes like a long way because of, of yeah, the, the work people have to put into it. Yeah. And one of the things that I find so interesting about in your shoes so appealing about it is that it tackles this fundamental need and desire yeah. to to talk because sometimes people like have this notion that we are polarized and nobody wants to listen right. but i i also wonder recently with a lot of 
controversies that are generating like a lot of heat in the country. Mm, like I, I do hear that. Like I know what they think. I don't want to hear them. So is that like a challenge you have faced specifically uh, with the participants of the In Your Shoes project? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I think that may have been, a, again, sort of a thing where there might have been some folks, um, particularly on the Patrick Henry side, who felt a little like maybe some of their thoughts or ideas might have been like marginalized a little bit. I do remember, you know, like I feel like conversations about Trump uh, were really, were sort of hard to, you know, were challenging for the group to navigate. I mean, yeah, we had very like sort of left-leaning vocal students in the Georgetown cohort. You know, say, like, students had, like, impeach Trump now stickers on their water bottle. You know, like, I wasn't, you know, totally sure how that landed or read or, you know, anything like that. But the students are aware that, like, that's part of what they're doing this project for. Like, But I appreciate so much about the students who elect to participate, you know, especially from the Patrick Henry and Georgetown cohort sides. But really, anybody. I mean, I think folks in this country anyway, um, I, I do feel like, you know, the promise of college and higher education is, like, you're going to meet people who have all these different perspectives from you. But the whole model of recruitment at colleges in the United States is like, find your fit, you know, and so you're looking to, like, find more people who are like you. And so what happens is, you know, you get to a campus and you're here and you suddenly find yourself in some other version of, you know, echo chambers or in spaces that are not particularly diverse. And again, that's that's part of the college culture. That's part of what you're hoping for out of a residential experience. That's how it's built to you. That's how it's designed. Um, and so I, I just appreciate how much these students are, have been committed to trying to, like, you know, uh, manifest the promise of engaging with other perspectives um, in a way that they otherwise, you know, have not actually been getting in their college career. So, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously they're all up for the challenge. You know, they're all smart people. But, you know, the, the acting on it feels really important to me. One student who was part of that group and has also participated in other iterations of In Your Shoes is Ashani Kotege. Ashani is a scientist, a storyteller, activist from Colombo, Sri Lanka. For her, In Your Shoes was an opportunity to think differently about global politics, racism and colorism in the U.S. and Sri Lanka, and how she can use her love of performing arts and storytelling to make a difference. I actually came into Georgetown from Sri Lanka, so I came to the U.S. just to go to school here. And I came in thinking I wanted to do international politics. And when I was in high school, all throughout my school career, I had done a lot of very competitive activities. I played a lot of sports. I did Model UN. I did debating. So when I came to college, I was really burnt out from competing. So I just wanted to do something that was an extracurricular activity that was just fun, chill, non-competitive. Because in my classes, I knew I was going to be reading a lot, debating and arguing in my you know School of Foreign Service classes. So I just auditioned for a play my first week here, and I was really lucky to be cast. So after that, I got to meet a lot of people in the theater community. I was really embraced by the theater community at Georgetown, and it was so, so wonderful. But I always thought it would just be a, like a side thing. I would never really <laughs> um, take myself in theater or in the arts too seriously. And then I just kept doing plays and assistant directing or being in the cast or choreographing. So I just really immersed myself in the theater community. And then I heard about the In Your Shoes project in one of my, I think it, it was a big class. It, it might have been international relations. Um, and because In Your Shoes was a collaboration between the government department and the theater department, the government department was uh, advertising In Your Shoes and They just talked about how it was, you know, this like groundbreaking methodology to start conversations. Um, and it was just incredibly intriguing to me, this idea of having conversations with people that are, I don't know if fundamentally is the right word, but I guess politically very different to you because the initiative that I was a part of was the one with Patrick Henry College, which is the conservative Christian college in Virginia. So it was incredibly intriguing to me. I liked all the themes that it talked about. They advertised it that home would be a big theme that was a part of that year's project. And I am perpetually homesick <laughs> and also always looking 
to make home and to ground myself in a home. And at that time, I hadn't, I still hadn't found it at Georgetown, even though I had a lot of communities that were welcoming me. So I applied and I had a wonderful conversation with Derek, a wonderful conversation with Daniel Bramberg. And I got into the program and I got into the class and it was a five credit class. So I knew it would be both academically and emotionally laborious, but it was one of the most fantastic, informative experiences of my Georgetown career. <laughs> in, in what way? Well, I think one way was that it showed me a way to learn and a way that a classroom operated in such a non-traditional way. You know, we got there the first day and a big thing that we did was we said each other's names and we said our full names out loud and then the whole class would say it back to you and send that energy back to you. Ashani Nihinsa Kotege. Ashani Nihinsa Kotege. Fatima Rugi Daifeng. Fatima Rugi Daifeng. Shakir Hood. Shakir Hood. Shiva Subaraman. Shiva Subaraman. And it was the first time that my name was ever said in the U.S. in full, in the correct way, and people were intent on pronouncing it right and were saying it with the right type of energy. And I was on the brink of tears. So similar to that, we did a lot of exercises that were just about getting to know each other in very simple ways. You know, we'd say names of people we loved and places we loved and echo those back to one another. So they weren't even full conversations in a traditional way. So we just developed this incredible community, even in just the first class and the first time that we met. And then we would, you know, do the methodology where we would have these conversations and then perform as the other person. And every single time I would just learn so much, learn so much about the history of different places, the history of different people, about their experiences, why they have certain values and how their values have changed. And I was just mind blown, you know, that this is how politics should be done. This is how classrooms should be conducted, where you stop and start when students want and you're engaging with the full person. A conversation is an invitation to tell a story about ourselves. What matters to us based on our experiences, the people we love, the moments and ideas that have shaped our sense of self. We may be afraid about opening ourselves up to the judgment of others, but what in your shoes shows us is how meaningful it can be to feel that we really are being heard, that others want to know our stories. It was just incredible to me. I, I keep saying that I think inner shoes should be a part of every school's core methodology because um, you just learn how to listen and you learn how to speak and you learn how to hear, not just listen. So it was yeah, such a wonderful experience. Tell me a little bit about that. How has it impacted the way you listen and you engage in conversation? So as I said, we were all incredibly different people. Even the 10 or 15 of us who were from Georgetown, we were of different nationalities, races, ages, genders, sexualities. And then even the students from Patrick Henry College existed across a spectrum from very, very staunch Catholics uh, or to those who are more willing to hear more progressive views and stuff like that. But no matter how different we all were, we would break out into song together or share meals together and when two people were performing, we would all be watching and listening at the same time and taking in what they were saying at the same time. And that just made me realize that if you can start there, if you can start at listening and listening not to respond, but listening to truly understand, it is, you know, game changing. You may not change somebody's mind, but for me personally, it activated a lot of things that helped me be open to other perspectives because you're seeing everybody's humanity. When you're watching someone else perform your words and sometimes those words can be triggering, they can be very, very personal, very emotional to you, very things you may have even hesitated to say out loud, but now someone else is saying it. Uh, I, I think that act of just watching that and being in the room... Um, is very humbling <laughs> and brings everybody who's in that room together. So that sense of community I love and learning how to listen because we would have discussions after the performances, but for the duration of the performance, 
all you had to do was listen and there was no debate nobody would win or lose in the discussions we had yeah actually that is one of the things i wanted to ask you like how does it feel to see yourself performed by other people and also performing other people right yeah and There was this one day of class. It was the first time we went to Patrick Henry College, I think. And I was paired with a Georgetown student who was biracial. She was half Indian, half white. So when her and I had the conversation about home, that was the prompt. We talked for hours. We talked for hours and hours and hours. And we talked a lot about our skin color. We talked about um, like race and romance and belonging on Georgetown's campus. And we had both each picked a part of each other's conversation that was very similar. It was about colorism. And, you know, I'm someone that grew up incredibly dark-skinned. And in Sri Lanka, there's very rampant colorism that's getting better. But, you know, Fair and Lovely is promoted in Sri Lanka. It's a huge part of the hangover from British colonialism. There's a big white superiority complex. So everybody was always telling me to be fairer or, or giving me advice on how to become lighter skinned from bleach to showering in milk to all sorts of nonsense. And I, you know, shared that experience with her. And she talked about having a similar experience where she is fairly light skinned, but when the summer comes around, she gets darker. And she hates herself and how she hated her skin and she hated her body and she had a lot of self-hate. And that's the part of what she had confided in me that I was performing. And as I was performing, I was realizing that maybe the, the fact that she doesn't like her skin color, I wonder how she sees me then, <laughs> you know, like if I'm, I'm much darker skinned, there were other students in the class who were black and they had a similar reaction. So I was learning something about my own response to what she was saying in that moment that I hadn't felt when her and I were talking, but when I was performing, I was feeling it. And when she was performing my words, I was feeling all the things that I guess I had been suppressing when I was growing up. You know, I always wore the color of my skin with pride. Everybody back home would call me Kalu, which in Sinhalese means black. And I wore that. I thought that was a term of endearment. I always wore that with happiness and pride. But when she was performing my words, I realized other people didn't mean it in a good way. They meant it in an offensive way. They meant it in a derogatory way. And I was feeling all of that in that moment again. So I think it has such an incredible power to activate emotions that you have been suppressing. But then you hear somebody else say it. And then you realize the gravity of those words and the gravity of your emotions. Yeah, it is so impactful. Like, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that was, I think, our first big conversation that we had after she and I performed. We talked on that topic of color and race for a very, very, very long time that day. And it got really tense. It got emotional. There were a lot of tears. <laughs> there was a lot of... But through that, there was also a lot of truth, you know? A lot of um, the, the black students in the class the one black student from Patrick Henry College who was one of two black students from the whole school who was in our class shared her experience and experiences of racism that she had encountered at PHC that her peers didn't know about or her peers didn't know how serious they were until she started talking about it. I remember I learned a lot because race is a new concept to me because we don't have race in Sri Lanka. We have ethnic groups and we all mostly look the same. So a lot of the vocabulary I was learning for the first time, you know, a lot of the... There were students from Patrick Henry who were saying things like, I don't see color. And to me at the time, this was my sophomore year, I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, if you don't see color, that means like everybody loves everybody, hakuna matata. And they are some of the kindest people that I've met, you know, such warm, warm, kind people. But then I even learned with them that saying that you don't see color means that you're ignoring somebody's a huge part of their identity and how they occupy the world and and the, both the problems and the successes that they encounter, all the things that nuance those things. So I was learning so much from my peers. We were all learning from each other. We were confronting each other. We were being brave. We were saying ouch and oops, <laughs> which was something that I learned from In Your Shoes. Uh, it was a concept that Rabbi Rachel, who was also in our class as a facilitator, brought to us. Even though it was tense and some people would consider that day as 
a day where we encountered conflict. I actually think that was a day where we made so much progress because we had the confidence and bravery and courage, but also comfort with one another to be like, I actually think that's wrong. And I think what you said is offensive. And I don't think you should say that anymore. Or even if you say that, this is how it affects me. So we were all really, really engaging with one another that day. And it was, I think it was one of the last times we met because COVID happened. (laughs) Conversations are not just an expression of our beliefs and identities, but they shape us too. Listening to the stories of others is an opportunity to make meaning of our experiences, to better understand different ways of thinking about life, and to engage with worlds beyond ours. Conversations expand who we are. Yeah, the, the other thing that really struck me about what you were sharing is this community building, right? Like and by seeing all of these different dimensions and experiences of other people, and that that is why I find this space that in your shoes creates so special because those are things we don't talk about in our daily lives. Yeah, it's something where I I struggle with it a little bit because I'm a very open person. I'm very talkative, very extroverted, very like open to wearing my heart on my shoulders and being very vulnerable and sharing my story. Whereas other people take more time to peel the layers of their onion. <laughs> and and so because of that, because people come to these spaces with different levels of comfort with sharing and vulnerability is why I think building that sense of community is so, so important. And so in this context, it's done in a classroom-like setting, but any theater classroom is never a traditional classroom where you're sitting and taking notes, right? We are doing so much watching and sharing and reading. And I think that sense of community building or ensemble building is really important because we wouldn't have felt comfortable to share all those things about our family and ourselves and our sexualities and stuff like that with each other without it. But then it comes to this question of, okay, how do we do it outside that, you know? But If you think about someone who you're friends with or your family, you actually already have a sense of connection that I didn't have with the 20 people in that class. You know, that's why we had to build it. So I think that sense of inherent connection you have with a friend or a family member or a partner or a sibling should be used to start these conversations. You should say, you know, I'm starting from a place of love. I'm not asking you these questions because I want to antagonize you, because I want to prove you wrong or change your mind or whatever. I just want to hear you. I want to hear your perspective. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned and that we try to emphasize through In Your Shoes is that you shouldn't go into it trying to change somebody's mind. You should go into it trying to be heard and trying to hear other people and... If that's all you get from it, you should be okay with that. And yeah, that's something I'd really hope that you can do with anybody in your life, you know. What surprised you the most about engaging in this experience? I think what surprised me the most was how I could find a way to connect with almost every single person I had a conversation with. It's not always groundbreaking discussions about race or religion or gender, you know. It, like, I remember one of the students had used me an incredible story they shared about teaching their brother how to throw a ball, like, which was so sweet and so tender, and that's something that was important to him. So it became important to us. And similarly, I had a conversation with one of the Patrick Henry students about siblings and about, uh, you know, I told him all about my brother, who I'm really close to, and he told me about his, like, fiery redhead sister, which is how he described her. And that was, you know, that's now a connection that we have and that we will continue to have. And if we ever see each other again, that's something I will talk to him about and check up on. So, and like that, with every person I talked to, there was something we could connect on, even if it wasn't a big agreement on how we see the world. Yeah, and and that was surprising to me. And I think that was surprising to a lot of other students too, because I remember a lot of people being like, wow, I did not think I could connect with someone who was on the other end of the political spectrum or votes completely different to the way I vote, but we love cooking the same food, you know, and that's a really sweet thing. I want to ask you, 
how your perception of yourself may have been touched by this experience? I, I think I'll, I'll draw on a different experience to answer that question, which was the the performance that I did at the Lannan Center, which was where I had a conversation with Shiva Subaraman, who is this powerhouse South Indian lady. <laughs> Sivagami Subaraman, she, her pronouns. Uh, I was most recently the director of the LGBT Center and the Women's Center on campus. I retired in June, but I'm currently teaching the performing LGBTQ plus history class. And I'm really loving it to be black in the classroom. It's been a really healing gift. Who I have so much in common with, but also so many differences. We just like talked forever. But in that conversation, I was learning so much about myself because in a lot of ways, Shiva was this projected version of me in the future. But she was noticing all these things where she was like, wow, it's crazy to hear you say that you don't like the cold because now I love the cold, you know, or like you feel guilty for leaving, whereas for me, I had to leave. And all those conversations about our different experiences. You know, I've been thinking a lot about home, especially I think as I've gotten older. People always think I'm going to go back to India, you know, now that I'm retired. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about home And it's kind of funny, right? Like it's 40 years since I came. 40 years is a long time, right? And that's twice as long as you've been on planet Earth. (laughs) So I spent the bulk of my adult life in the U.S., right? And I was thinking, you know, the notion of home has shifted so much over time. So like you were saying, when I first came, you know, home was there and home was not here. It was there. I was foreign here. Um, At home was where my father was, my family was, um, my friends were. I was the perpetual foreigner here. And then, but at the end of the first decade, especially after my father passed away, it began to be like home is India or Tamil Nadu or Chennai and where my friends were still. But slowly, this was something else. I don't know whether to call it home yet. But, you know, I had to. I had a significant other. I was settling down. I had a job. You know, other things had happened. But still, home was there and here. And it felt like home was in the gaps or was in those cracks and those fissures that I couldn't quite navigate yet, right? Like... It was somewhere between and betwixt, and it felt okay to do that. That And then another decade passed, right? It was interesting for me because, um, you know, people here would say to me, I'd become a citizen of the U.S., and I took forever. (laughs) I took 20 years, right? Like, because I didn't want to give up my Indian citizenship. Yeah, we we don't have dual. And so the idea of giving that up was very hard, But it was only in the second or the third decade after living here, I asked myself, so why did I leave home? It wasn't quite the home that it was supposed to be. Um, I was a survivor, and as I came out in my queerness, I'd left home because it wasn't quite home. And I had to face that, right? Like, it, it, it wasn't home. And this had given me a way to reinvent myself. And so this was the place in that sense of dreams and possibility. Because in that 20 years, I had reinvented myself. And it was really weird that 9-11 happened and that it was like everybody here was like, go back to where you came from. Except people at home were like, what you left us, so go back to where you are. Right? And so... That sense of being always between and betwixt continued, right? And as I age now, more and more people have passed away, right? So, like, so home is no longer... So home became, like, this this thing in my imagination. It became this dream. It became a, a shield that I carried or wielded to protect myself from the rest of the world. But I think 
increasingly, I also know that home is no longer with the specific people or beloveds, that home is wherever I am, and roots are where I put them. And I don't know if you can relate to this as an international student, but I feel like I have this sense of imposter syndrome when I'm here because I'm not American. And then when I go back to Sri Lanka, there's this sense of, oh, you left us. So you're not here. You're not there. Like, where exactly do you belong? And there's this idea of, you know, if to be a true Sri Lankan, you have to stay in the country, work right now, work with a sense of urgency. And I'd respect the people who are doing that. But through my conversation with Shiva is when I was really realizing what it means to be Sri Lankan and how that is still me. And if anything, I'm doing plenty of work to, you know, put the country on the map and move forward conversations about it and raise funds for what's happening whenever there's a crisis there, because it seems like that's endless. (laughs) And, you know, how me being here, me learning and using the opportunities that I get here, because there's a dearth of opportunity and choice in Sri Lanka, doesn't mean that I'm betraying anyone or anything. If anything, it's grounding. And that conversation grounded me more in my sense of identity and my sense of national pride because Shiva still felt that. And she did highlight that, you know, as you, the longer you live in another place, obviously there's a sense of disconnect that comes. But what you feel in your heart doesn't really change. So that really, really helped me ground myself. (laughs) And she also really encouraged me to reflect more on why I wanted what I wanted, given her experiences, you know. So I think my sense of self was more solidified after that experience. She and I talked a lot about the arts also, because I, I was I thought I would be an academic. Um, I thought I would be a policymaker. I thought I would be a scientist. I was just anything but the arts, because it was so tabooed to go into that field. But she just engaged me about the power of storytelling and how much I'm constantly drawn to that. And I just saw the power that she has and how much she has embraced that and how, you know, maybe I should do that too. (laughs) Um, So I definitely yeah, felt a much stronger sense of self coming out of that In Your Shoes experience. It's funny, I've never had imposter syndrome in the class. But in a theater class or stage, I immediately, I don't, I don't belong. You know, I, I've never been to Broadway. I've never watched live theater. I don't know who all these actors are. Are you, I don't even know who Shekhov is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did a presentation. It moved them. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. I know I want to be a storyteller. I want to be a storyteller, but I don't see people like me in positions of creative power. I want to find more confidence in being unapologetic and uncensored, finding those in-betweens, but not giving up on authenticity. So I have to begin again. And part of breaking that cycle, to break that cycle of intergenerational trauma, right, is rethinking what is American, what is Western, what is progressive, and what was originally ours, you know, in pre-colonial Sri Lanka, we need to start reimagining, right? We need to start reimagining what it means to be South Asian, to be from the global South. I'm thinking a lot. I'm thinking a lot about reclamation. I'm thinking a lot about reclamation. I'm not buying into the American imagination. So I know that also a lot of what you want to do, and you already do, has to do with environmental action, right? So I I wonder if In Your Shoes has also contributed to that work you are doing? Yeah, definitely. Because now climate change or environmental issues in general have become very divisive. And me and the lab are actually in talks about doing an In Your Shoes that's related to the environment. Because I have met people who are really misunderstood and whose perspectives are misconstrued in the media. For example, I did this alternative spring breaks program in Appalachia. So in places like Kentucky, there are so many incredible people doing work to make a just transition from coal to sustainable energy. But in the media, Appalachia is 
perceived and portrayed as this place that's so committed to coal and is the biggest obstacle to sustainable energy and things like that, whereas they are doing so much to move forward. And in a lot of the ways, they are suffering disproportionately because of how concentrated the coal industry was in areas like that. So I would love to use In Your Shoes as a methodology to bring out those conversations. Something that I'm really, really interested in is myth busting. <laughs> There's a lot of myths, especially in the eco-sustainability world, around greenwashing, around who is doing good work and who isn't, who is suffering and who isn't. And I would love to use this type of methodology to bust those myths and really shed a light on the truth of what's happening in places. developed by In Your Shoes to facilitate meaningful conversations between people from different backgrounds can be applied to respond to diverse issues and needs. Ijeo Manjaka describes how In Your Shoes has been adapted with different groups across Georgetown and talks about its transformative potential in the classroom. Um, so in the past couple of years, we've done a few different iterations of it with different um, populations um, and in different contexts as well. We've done um, classes with just Georgetown students in them, you know, trying to um, sort of illuminate the differences um, that exist on Georgetown's campus sort of inherently. And then um, in the last year, we've done a couple of different iterations that have been new for us and have been really sort of exciting to, to see. Uh, we collaborated with the Lannan Center um, and had a really intergenerational um, and sort of multicultural and Uh, you know, global um, selection of participants for for In Your Shoes, uh, particularly in conversation about Georgetown's history with slaveholding and the GU-272. There's also a In Your Shoes group cohort with students across the, the Chinese diaspora. Um, and so that one has been running since the spring. Um, I, uh, with some colleagues in the Doyle Engaging Difference Program here at Georgetown, ran a, a pilot with faculty and students doing In Your Shoes together. It's been interesting to see in what ways we can apply in your shoes in different contexts. And it's also really interesting when we do sort of share this work publicly, whether that's through like performances or like the Landon event, you know, I, I think folks in the audience are often like, well, wait, we like, could we try that? Is that something that we think could work, you know, in our context, which is always really exciting to hear that people are, think about, think that it would pretty easily apply to, to them in their, their context as well. So I wonder if the In Your Shoes approach needs to change or be adjusted, like to face these different contexts and populations and issues. I do think that In Your Shoes, sort of the model itself is like fairly versatile. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm an educator, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a learning designer. And so, you know, I, I am thinking a lot about how do we sort of shape these experiences to reach certain goals or to, yeah, sort of tailor them a little bit. And I, I think that can be done with sort of the surrounding materials or whatever that, you know, we, we put within In Your Shoes experience. Um, and or it could be a matter of like thinking about the prompts, for instance. Um, so when we did it with, uh, when we did In Your Shoes with faculty and students, um, you know, our prompts were less about, you know, home and things that they love, but they were, you know, broad words that kind of invoked learning or teaching. So we were like, The classroom or learning, you know, you know, they're just sort of, um, they're still open ended, but, you know, a bit more tailored to, to the conversations that we were hoping for folks to, to think about. And I, I also think that, you know, like any type of arts based learning experience, there are, you know, the surrounding materials to that experience can matter a lot and can help sort of shape that. You know, what to focus on there is, you know, how are they coming into this work? Like, what other types of community building are we doing? Um, what are we doing after we talk about these things? Or how are we structuring those conversations? Like, I think that that can help to apply to different audiences. I feel like there are elements about the process that, you know, would be hard to replicate. But some things that, you know, one could in a way that I think um, could have a positive impact. I'm actually just sort of thinking a little bit about this now. You know, we, we did this with faculty and students in the spring. And it was interesting to hear from some of the faculty members about like some things where they're like, oh, no, I want to try this in my class. Like these are things that I could see just sort of adapting into my class, which I thought was, you know, that was really affirming and that, that felt really good. But one thing that has happened, you know, a number of times facilitating groups and kind of getting them ready to do some of this work is we will do some call and response type of work. Derek would mention that In Your Shoes is very much inspired by call and response types of practices where, you know, someone says a thing and then, then you know, a crowd or other folks respond. Um, and so one of the main exercises that we do with the group is we share 
share our names and the group repeats them back. And so we, you know, as facilitators, we'll generally ask for like, the full name of somebody, you know, or what is their their full name as, you know, they they claim it, you know, and, and how uh, they perceive it to be. And people repeat it back. And, and there have been a number of times when, you know, people have been like, wow, like, I haven't had this many people, you know, in this country or in this context, like, just say my name properly. Like, I've never heard anyone, you know, listen to me. Or there have been instances, too, where we've done that work with people who've known each other for a long time. And, you know, people have been like, oh, my gosh, like, I've been mispronouncing your name. And, like, I hadn't realized that. It's, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Michelle Anona, she was even saying, why don't we just repeat names in class, for instance? Like, if we all just all did that for everybody instead of just signaling out students with, you know, names that people in this country and in this context tend to, you know, struggle over a little bit. Like, what if we all just did that? And I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, I feel like there are elements of, like, just that exercise alone. You know, I've seen it make such a huge difference for people because obviously names are important. And just, again, trying to show care and how listening and trying to, like, listen carefully to how somebody says their own name, I think, feels really important. What lessons have you learned from your work in the In Your Shoes project? You know, in addition to doing the In Your Shoes work at the lab, I, I support a course about Jan Karski, a very early Holocaust witness, and who was also a Georgetown professor for 40 years. But he often, his work during World War II was, you know, reporting on the atrocities of the Holocaust to the West and the Allied powers while there was still time for them to intervene. Um, and he felt like he was ignored and wasn't really listened to and wasn't believed. Um, and so... It's interesting, you know, I think earlier I, I made reference to the idea of, like, once you decide to put in the work to humanize somebody, it's, like, really hard to kind of, like, go back on that and decide, like, oh, you're not, I'm not going to treat you, like, with respect anymore. And I think it's been, you know, interesting to, like, to just sort of think about that work. I've been in working, you know, I've been at the lab for two and a half years. It's not quite long enough for me to sort of know which ripples and how these ripple effects from this work have affected the lives of these students that we've had. And so, you know, I can't, I can't really speak to that. But I, I think there's so much potential here for things that are, like, going to shape someone's life and how they see the world around them in really sort of fundamental ways. You know, what happens if, like, a conversation that students had in this really intense experience about a given topic, what happens when they encounter that thing out in the world? It's always going to remind them of this person that they had an experience with. They're, like, going to care about it. And if they if they feel positively about it, then that's going to be a positive memory that might sort of, like, shape a thing. What I hope, you know, what I hope happens with, with our students is that, you know, they'll meet somebody who might share something that's, you know, about, say, an identity or a belief system that they don't abide by or they don't share, but they're going to remember the conversation that they had with somebody about it. They're going to remember that the conversation was positive. They're going to remember that the person listened to them. And so they're not going to jump to a conclusion about, like, well, this person must be really bad. In fact, they might jump to the conclusion of, like, oh, yeah, well, they might actually be nice, <laughs> you know, kind human being because they remind me of this person or what they're sharing reminds me of this conversation that I had with that person. So that's what I hope for. I, I often wonder, and I, I certainly put a lot of faith in the idea of be a human being to other people and um, caring about that and, and the impact that I think it'll have. I will also say that I actually didn't do my first in your shoes experience. Like I had never done the exercise until like a couple of months ago for the first time. So you were one of the participants. Yeah, like I, I had a conversation, yeah, and recorded it and performed it back and I hadn't actually done that yet. Um, and, you know, part of me was like, how long can I get away with, you know, facilitating about this without ever doing this exercise? But so, yes, I did it for the first time a couple months ago. And, you know, I had seen that it was always very intense for people sometimes the first time that they do it. Um, and I certainly felt it that, you know, when I did it and it was, uh, <laughs> it was really overwhelming in a in a good way. But yeah, it just sort of struck me as, as something as well, where I was like, oh, well, I was not, <laughs> you know, you know, it until, you know, you know, it's, it's different sort of knowing about it and then sort of having experiencing it kind of firsthand. It's a really interesting way to sort of think about what it means to listen to somebody and like what it means to be heard and what it means to sort of trust somebody with, some, you know, with ideas or thoughts or memories that you have. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel really vulnerable. And I think, I think the practice of vulnerability is obviously really important too for our students also for for our facilitators <laughs> so for me <laughs> yeah. what would you recommend to people to engage in better conversations i think the sort of separation between like understanding what someone's saying and you know judging what they're saying or trying to debate them or persuade them otherwise is a really important distinction you know i i, I will speak for myself 
it is sometimes hard to withhold judgment when someone's saying something. It's very easy when someone's saying something to be like, oh, that sounds weird or like, don't agree with that at all. Um, but to try to understand something, you know, and or just like asking questions or just being curious about it and, you know, and trying to have earnestness in that curiosity, I think is something that's really, really important. We'll do community guidelines, like I mentioned before, with uh, groups when we're facilitating. And, and one thing that we'll often say is that, you know, we want to frame that in this space when we're asking questions, it's because we're curious. It's not because we're trying to challenge anything. It's because we're, we're working to understand and we're trying to learn more. And so if that sort of being a, you know, an underlying approach or sort of ethos to, to conversations, I think would actually make a big difference and hopefully help people talk more. Thank you for listening to How to Have a Conversation. This episode is my capstone project for the MA program in Engaged and Public Humanities at Georgetown University. This project was made possible by the support of Catherine Temple, Michael Coventry, Ricardo Ortiz, Sara Restrepo Quintero, Daniel Leguizamón, Christian Medina, and Laurel Hash. A special thanks to Ijeo Manjaka, Ashani Kotege, Shiva Subaraman, and everybody from the In Your Shoes Project, the Lanham Center, and the Gelardin Center for their valuable contributions to this episode. The artwork and design were created by Natalia Parejaguete, and the music is by Dr. Thurman.